if you're a qualified fitness professional, studying to be a fitness professional, sector or industry educator, or generally have an interest in the areas of health, fitness and well-being, then this, the Active IQ podcast, is well worth tuning into. We're the leading awarding organisation for the physical activity sector, keen to explore and share topical content via discussion, conversation, debate and Q&A shows, all with great guests and industry experts. This ensures that we give you, the listener, key insights into all things related to health, exercise, nutrition, mindset and performance. So please like, share and subscribe if you find the content of interest and be sure to check out our website at www.activeiq.co.uk. Hello there, James Clack from Active IQ here and welcome along to this instalment of the Active IQ podcast where I will be discussing some of the key considerations and issues relating to working in the increasingly popular world of strength and conditioning, something I know which will be of interest to many fitness professionals out there. And I'm really excited today to be joined on the line by Chris Ross, a strength and conditioning specialist and also an expert contributor to our Skills Hub platform. So welcome along, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thanks, James. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be part of this podcast. Um, I think uh, you and I will have some good good conversations. Excellent stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So I've got a list of questions um, which I'm I'm going to ask you. But before we do that, it'd be really useful if you could just give us a bit of an explanation about what it's like for you working in this industry, a bit about yourself, your journey, and kind of what you've learned along the way. So yeah, if you could do that before we get going with any questions, then that'd be really useful for our listeners. That sounds great, James. Um, I, I guess if if I get too too deep into the what I've learned along the way, it'll be a very long podcast because uh, I guess within our profession, it's all about a bit about learning as you go and evolving and adapting to to kind of what presents in front of you. But I guess um, the background for me is uh, I studied sport and exercise science at university. Um, all crikey, about nineteen twenty years ago now, and um, always enjoyed sport as a kid got to the university level and thought, oh, I quite like sport and science and it seemed to go together, but I really didn't have too much of an idea what was going to come on next. Um, I, I got involved with American football at university, which is a little bit abstract. I was always a rugby player. Um, and of course, with the, the North American connection there, strength and conditioning was, was something that was involved with club training. Um, I, I quickly got involved as the guy to deliver that because I seem to have the most knowledge out of anyone. Um, and just the most interest, I guess, is the thing. And uh, I guess so much of why we get into to training and fitness and, and conditioning and supporting people is just because we've got that passion for it and that that, that eagerness to be involved. Um, so I finished university, and um, I was rather lucky, really. I, I sort of stumbled into a role, and it was very much when strength conditioning was at its uh, very early growth state in the UK. So it was about 2004. Um, and the university, the University of Birmingham, actually had just recently received some scholarship funding to pr- provide strength and conditioning support to talented athletes um, at a junior level. And they were looking for somebody to start working part time. And I, I was chatting to the right person at the right time. So stumbled into a role and quite honestly did most of my learning in the, um, in the, sort of the, the subsequent seven years of my, my role there. And it's developed from being a handful of athletes um, right up to we had about five contracted coaches. I was the lead coach. We had um, around eight squads we worked with on a weekly basis and around 200 individual athletes. So it was a big old a big old practice and I think 
I learned an awful lot of management skills there, which um, I'm sure we can kind of relate back to a little bit later on in this, this discussion. Further on from that, I, I, I went my own way a little bit in 2011, set up my own sports consultancy, and also retouched with the university side of things. So I was really aware that I needed that evidence base to underpin what I was delivering. So I started working at Coventry University as, um, as a lecturer, um, as well as delivering my own consultancy. And that was working within schooling systems, uh, youth sport predominantly, and a little bit of elite sport as well. Um, and then from there, it's, it's rather snowballed. Um, I'm still coaching. Um, I'm still actively involved at the university. I'm now course director for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning. So it's a bit of a plug for, for our, our degree <laughs> program there. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm in my late stages of my final stages of a PhD. So I'm definitely pushing the research side, but it's all to inform practice. And I think that's the, the most important bit that research is pointless if it doesn't have a, a direct application to practice to make things better at the, at the, at the front of it and actually at the cold face to make your clients or your, or your participants or your athletes better. That's really the crux of it. Um, I'm heavily involved with the UKSCA, so the UK Strength and Conditioning Association, our governing body, um, as a tutor and involved in one of their panels. So I feel like I've got lots of lots of kind of irons and fires, and, that, and I think probably that's going to be a take-home message as well, that generally in the strength and conditioning profession, you need multiple skill sets. And you need, uh, as we sort of like tell my students and tell my, my you know, younger mentor colleagues, we need a bit of a portfolio career. If you, if you hang your hat just solely on one area, it's um, it's a challenging environment to work in. So it's a, a broad a broad background for me, but hopefully that can offer value to your listeners and, and your your members, and uh, we can have a good conversation about it. Yeah, mate, definitely. I mean, you know, your background and, and your experience is, is why we've got you on this podcast today. And like you say, if you can offer some insights and kind of valuable hints, tips, direction to anybody considering a career in, in this kind of area of work, then definitely achieving um, something really positive, I think. so. That's I'll do great. my best. No, I'm sure you will. All right, great. So I guess we should probably, and, and thanks for giving that background to yourself there. But before we get going, it might be useful just to set the tone for, I mean, most people listening, I would assume, maybe wrongly, rightly, I don't know, would know what an SNC coach does. Um, but just in case you don't, and it's something that's new to you, it might be worth just setting the scene and explaining that is. So I've just taken this from the English Institute of Sport, and they identify strength and conditioning coach as someone who plans, delivers and reviews the physical and physiological preparation of athletes aligned to specific sports performance outcomes. And therefore, it's no wonder that SNC coaches must have a deep understanding of the physical characteristics required to excel in any given sports performance, as well as an understanding of what is required to be resilient to the demands of the intensity and volume within a performer's training environment. And also, you need to obviously have an understanding of the technical training opportunities and requirements for given and respective sports. So essentially, I guess the, the role takes a holistic approach to the entire physical development of an athlete and also what is required to allow them to be the best physical version of themselves. So I guess my first question off the back of that, Chris, is how does that definition fit with your own perspective, experience, knowledge, skill set, working in the world of S&C? Um, that's the first part to the question. And second part, and if you forget that bit, I can remind you in a bit, no problem. <laughs> Just loaded. Um, essentially is how does S&C differ from the world of 
fitness and personal training are there any major differences are they quite aligned um it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that okay um well first of all it's a very eloquent uh, definition you provided there you, you definitely set the scene i didn't and, come up and with fundamentally it. <laughs> <laughs> you could take credit fundamentally i think you know, it is, of course, what we do as strength conditioning practitioners. I, I guess it's important to first state that strength conditioning is is a big spectrum of of support. Um, my role, you know, part of my role um, at the moment is I work with late stage rehab from knee surgeries, and I work with physiotherapists. They're quite a kind of the return to play remedial end, and of course, then you know, you, you work at the very top end, which is the the marginal gains and fine tweaking to get guys to the Olympic Games. Um, I, I like to think of it as, um, I guess, some of the bits to pick up from your definition. Strength conditioning is, is evidence-based. I think that's the first important, important element that we base our practice on, on planning and preparation, and that's from established evidence and literature. So we say that, you know, we, we identify what's worked in perhaps um, testing and laboratory environments and research environments and then we look to, to apply that into the performance environment. And I think holistic is a very good word. We, we work in a multidisciplinary environment predominantly. Um, you will find strength conditioning coaches who work solely in isolation, but I, I don't think it's the most effective way to do it. I've done it in the past, and I've definitely found I'm most effective for the athlete and the client when I work in a, in a group, in a, in a collaborative team. And that might be sports medics, so physiotherapists, sports massage. It might be nutritionists, psychology, um, exercise physiologists, biomechanists. Um, and of course, then there's the technical team as well, the technical sports coaches. Um, and I think a nice definition of strength conditioning is that we, we look to achieve a performance outcome. Um, and that might be one of the, the areas where we tend to differ slightly from, from personal training and that's not a, a derogatory to PT by any means, sure. but I think it's within S&C we, we, we test and we assess and we identify a performance outcome that, that has relevance to that participant. So it might be achieving a, a personal best 5K park run. It might be Olympic gold medal. Um, and we identify, we break down that objective into what are the physical requirements you know, is it a bigger aerobic base? Is it um, a greater ability to produce force, say, you know, a bigger back squat, let's say? And then our objective, we plan and we program to achieve those goals. You, you talked a little bit about kind of, um, or you referenced almost an injury, and, and it's, it's looking at robustness. And, and again, from my point of view, especially working within sports, uh, it doesn't matter how strong, how fit, how fast, how explosive an athlete is. If they're injured, they're not going to be involved on the pitch or the court. So fundamentally, we have a duty of care and a priority to to reduce um, injury risk where we can. And I think the misnomer of injury prevention is 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 probably untrue. You, you can never absolutely prevent injury, but there is definitely some injuries that we can reduce the risk of. Even though the, the the stereotypical footballer sprinting down the wing in fresh air pops his hamstring, that's potentially because of poor conditioning, poor strength, poor physical qualities that we could have dealt with. Um, of course, if you know on the rugby field on the rugby pitch, if you get smacked in the shoulder by an eighteen stone whopper travelling at full tilt, strength conditioning might help, but it might it definitely won't be uh, the be all and end all to reduce reduce risk of injury. So we look at the big picture. We look at non-contact injury risk reduction, 
Um, and I guess because we're working quite often within sport and performance sport, it is looking at the cutting edge um, research. And I think this is probably going to come into conversation a bit later. It's often seen as the, the sexy side of training. It's the stuff that is the Instagram. It's the, the highlight reel. It's the, wow, look at them throwing this stuff around and jumping on there and sprinting with this and that and everything else. And whilst that is appropriate, that is, you know, a small proportion of our of our role and our profession, I think the stuff that goes unseen is the the grinded out body weight work and the, the big slow aerobic work and the, the, the you know, the fairly standard looking protocol. And that's definitely where there's huge similarities between strength conditioning and PT, is that a lot of it is just following good practice, doing good stuff, doing it consistently. Um, basic principles of training, so overload, um, reversibility, specificity, etc., and and just ensuring that we have a, a clear objective and a clear plan. Um, so, you know, quite honestly, there, there's, there's subtle areas where we do differ. I think a lot of it is 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 how it's marketed and how it's seen. Um, we're looking at that performance outcome, predominantly working with sports, looking at injury reduction through improving movement qualities and physical capabilities and it's evidence-based and we tend to work in a, in a team um, and I think probably personal training you know professionals and practitioners where they get the opportunities to work in holistic teams I'm sure they always do it's probably more just just uh, reflective of the environment they work in where there's more of a demand for them to be you know a master of everything and uh, and that's a, that's a tough challenge to be yeah sure I mean you touched on a few things which I think are quite pertinent there the first one being there is a large focus or significant focus on keeping that athlete fit healthy injury free so like you say they can even just turn up to the court the pitch and perform and demonstrate all the months years of of background training the hard hours in the gym on the pitch on the field etc because if they're injured they don't even get that opportunity to do it and it's all been kind of really a bit of a waste of time but yeah in terms of the other elements, I mean, PTs should really be doing those things just on a different level of a different approach, I'm assuming. So do you feel that there's anything that the kind of world of fitness professionals, personal trainers, gym instructors, even class instructors, I guess, to some extent, could could learn from the world of S&C or could take from from your a role like yours? Um, I think it's very much, I, I, I think there are things, I think it does come down to individual circumstance. Um, I know when, when, you know, I've, I've done worked as more of a PT environment, um, and you, you push the time. And I think a lot of this is having the opportunity to, to step back and reflect, plan, to review, to, to talk and work with other professionals. And I guess that would be my biggest, my biggest kind of recommendation is try and get yourself into a network where there are different skilled individuals and you don't have to be a master of everything. You don't have to, you know, try and write a nutritional program, strength training program, a fitness program, you know, and a psychology program all at once. If there are people that can do that role better than you, then work with them. Your clients will only thank you for it because they'll ultimately be getting a better support and they'll see that you are providing a, a more holistic approach. I think there's always that tendency to try and uh, keep your clients, keep your, your athletes to yourself. And there's that uh, a very understandable concern of we, we don't want we don't want to start losing people by outsourcing, um, but I think you you have to take a pragmatic approach 
and and realise that if you do talk and you work holistically and collaboratively with other other professions, that it's only going to be a better provision for your clients. And ultimately, that's what we're we're in this line of work: the, the sport, the fitness, and the health environment is to to help people, to to look after people, to make them better in pain management, into performance, into to body composition and weight loss, into just general health and well-being. So, you know, I think sometimes it's a case of playing the long game, working with the professionals, and ultimately that will enhance your reputation. And I think long-term will give you a far happier clientele base and uh, probably a larger one as well. And also it works both ways. That nutritionist who's then looking to, to get some physical support for their, for their clients well, you're going to be the first person to, to knock on the door. So I think it's working with other disciplines and don't be afraid to, to have those conversations and, and take advice and, and challenge things and and see where you can improve. And I guess that's, uh, we're, I'm waffling a bit now. You have to hold me down, James. But I think it's, it's uh, a bigger picture thing of, of in our environment, don't be afraid to, to challenge what you're doing and review it and say, how can I make that better? How could I do that session better next time? How could I program that cycle better? How could I coach that exercise better? Um, because if you don't do that reflection, you're going to keep repeating the same things and you'll plateau, you'll become stale, and ultimately you won't provide the best level of support for your, for your client base. Yeah, sure. I think you've touched on something really, really kind of important there around this issue or, or notion of reflective practice, you know, it links in with mm-hmm. all of the stuff around evidence-based practice and making sure you're up to date with your research and goings on and developments within industry working. But also, and again, you touched on it earlier around how do you actually put that into practice? And when you do, making sure that you reflect on it to, to see, is it worth continuing with? Do I need to tweak yep. it somehow? Um, how do I apply it better in future? What would happen if I manipulate this variable, that variable in a different way? All those questions are really, really key. It, it is. And I, I start from a very basic point. You know, I have a three three word approach, which is plan, do and review. And, and I preach that to, to my athletes, my, my clients, my, um, my students and, and my fellow coaches. And it is very much that we're planning. So we've got evidence base. We, we go into it with a clear objective and, and a rationale for why we, we know this is going to be a, an effective tool to use. We deliver it. So, of course, that's the, the, the side of coaching and communicating and can we actually get that message across. And then importantly, it's review. And, and I think reflective practice is often quite a, a scary concept for people because there's that concern perhaps that you're going to challenge yourself to the point where you lose confidence or you you realize perhaps that you're not doing as good a job as you, you could be doing. And it, it, it doesn't have to be scary. It's a productive process. You know, Einstein said it best that, that doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, how can we keep going and doing the same, same thing and expect something magically different to happen? And that review doesn't have to be a long-winded sit-down and, and pour your heart out. Quite often, I will just take five minutes on my car journey home and I'll just turn my podcast off, the Active IQ podcast is often on, I would say, um, but I'll pop my podcast off and just think, all right, what went well that session? What didn't go quite so well? And what am I going to do better next time? Yeah. And it could be simple things that, for instance, if my darling children kept me up all night and I was feeling a little bit tired and a little bit, a little bit flat, and if I didn't kind of get my game face on and if I didn't feel like I quite 
you know, energize myself to energize my, my athletes. Well, then of course that's an important learning point that I need to make sure that I'm, I'm aware of when I'm perhaps not on top, top energy and, and make sure I promote, you know, full energy and full enthusiasm because that carries over to the, the quality of training and quality of delivery. So, you know, that review can be a very short process, but it's really critical that that happens because we're never going to evolve and adapt. And, and, as a generalization, and I know that industries are changing, I think because the, the, the fitness and the health industry and, and PT in particular has been around a lot longer than strength and conditioning, there is a slightly dogmatic approach. There is a, well, we've always done it this way and it works well enough. Let's stick with it. It does change and I appreciate that. But I think equally, you have to start bending bending away from, from what's been done always. You know, it's safe and it gets clients in and, and it does a good enough job. But does it do the best job? Um, and, and that's uh, probably a, a distinguishing factor between strength and conditioning because there isn't that historic level of we've done this and it works well enough. We don't, you know, we challenge things. And of course, we are looking for top level performance. You know, we're not trying to create good enough athletes or athletes who are, you know, the same as the average. We're looking to, to, to push things to the point where we're really refining and and challenging and, and sometimes it, it takes a few mistakes. It takes looking at them and going, okay, I over pushed that athlete and, and they didn't perform well because of it. Um, but then it's only going to inform practice for later. And that's really critical. Yeah. And, and being analytical, I guess, is a, a key thing. It kind of links to being reflective, I guess, in that a lot of people mm-hmm. think that these, these processes should be formalized in some way. I know some people like to keep logs, journals, etc., and they reflect on their own performance in, in whatever elements of their own life work, etc. But it doesn't yeah. have to be like that. It just be having a, a kind of quiet chat with yourself a few minutes after a session um, and just thinking about, you know, what were the key take home messages? What could I change? How could I give better advice? How could I coach better? Those kind of things. And just almost making a mental marker of it so that next time yeah. you do something about it, even if it's just one thing, there's lots of books about that kind of title at the moment that are floating around. But yeah, <laughs> absolutely, I think it's really insightful. It doesn't have to be overly formalised or formulaic. I'm dyslexic, so my brain works in in a very kind of visual and creative way. I can't sit down and write write reams of it, but I will kind of process it in my head and let you know the ideas flow in and flow out. And I might jot down a few very very short short notes on my phone afterwards, and that's it. I'll say right, done move on and, you know, and, and kind of let it soak. And that's really important too. Mm-hmm. You're much better off doing something very simple, very um, achievable and, and repeatable than trying to, you know, follow the rule book and do these wonderfully long reflective practices that really only last about two weeks yeah. and you don't do anything with them anyway. So that's important. Mm. And, and you touched on something else there, logging something on your phone. I just want how much kind of does technology get involved in in your role um, and work in the in the world of snc is it quite prevalent or it, do you tend it, to steer away? it is i think technology is an important tool let's say in snc but it's not a, it's not a requirement it's not an essential quality that you know of course i'm very fortunate i work in environments where when we come to testing and monitoring and assessing our athletes we can have all the technology we need we've got force plates we've got you know, full 3D camera systems, we've got um, environmental chambers, we've got everything we, we could possibly want. And that enhances the level of service. And that's definitely one thing. That, that means I can do more and I can get more data and I can be more accurate. 
but it's not an essential quality. I can go out on a muddy pitch on a Sunday morning with a, a, a stopwatch and a tape measure and a whole lot of cones. I can still run testing. I can still gather data. So I think technology is important, but it's important that people don't feel it's a, a hurdle that isn't unachievable. Oh, we can't possibly test our athletes because we don't have X, Y, and Z. And that, that's a, a concern I have in strength conditioning at the moment because there's this um, uh, reliance or, or, or kind of assumption that we need technology and we need to do all this flashy testing um, almost as a, a justification, let's be honest, of, of roles. You know, If I work in a professional team environment, crikey, I've got to be using all the bells and whistles. I've got to be gathering this this high-tech-looking data to, to make sure that the head coach and the board of directors think I'm doing a good job. And I think it takes a lot of courage to step back and say, well, actually, I don't need that information. That data isn't going to enhance the performance. Really, if I just treat things very simply and I get a little bit, if I get 50% or 20% of that, I can do a lot more with it. Um, and that takes experience and time and, and you know a little bit of confidence in what you're doing. Um, but it's... Uh, not having the technology shouldn't be a barrier, but it should be something that can support good practice um, because it allows us to be more um, objective-based, more um, detailed in our reviews. Um, it gives us you know, much finer margins for, for quality improvement. Um, and that's, a, that's a kind of an important take-home, I think, as well. You don't need it all, but if you do have it, use it wisely. Yeah, and evidenced in the, the Rocky film, <laughs> you know, Drago. Drago, yeah, yeah. Had all the tech Absolutely. and still didn't still didn't beat Rocky. But um, we should just walk through snowy snowy mountains with with a log and chase chickens. Yeah, exactly. Back to the old school <laughs> training methods. <laughs> well, you know, but again, simple is best. You know, and, uh, uh, we're going off on tangent now, James. But no, you know, right. I think sometimes from a strength conditioning part of my my coaching philosophy is is do the simple things and. Only when you've fully exhausted the really simple things do you go to the the technical and the the more the more complex things. You know, if if your if your client is still getting stronger with back squatting, um, you know, yes, you have to, to, to change things program and cycle wise. You know, and manipulate variables like load and, and and volume. But ultimately, don't change it for the sake of changing it. Don't change it just because it's it's flashy and new and and they're going to go, oh, this looks exciting. Yeah. You know, change it when you've exhausted it. When when you're no longer getting improvement, then you have to kind of change and make things a little bit more challenging and complex. And, and I think maybe one of the things, or it's one of the questions I asked, I guess, what what could be learned from the world of S&C and kind of translated into the world of traditional personal training and mm -hmm. working as a fitness professional? As you say, data isn't everything, but I don't think we necessarily use data enough in, in the fitness industry at, the, at present. Um, we have a lot yeah. of means of gathering data. And like you say, it looks flashy if you're walking around with something on your iPad or your phone and using the, the latest bit of kit maybe. But what do you do with that? And why are you, why are you gathering it? What What's the point? Um, I think we need yeah. to get better at that. Uh, there are some great PTs and fitness professionals out there who really know what they're doing with it and are really efficient and slick um, and use it yeah. to great effect. But equally, I, I see it in gyms I go to, it's data gathering for the sake of it and with no real application of that. So I think that's something yeah. which maybe we within the fitness profession could could take or learn something from you guys working. Yeah, I think that is a really valid point, exactly that. It's, 
it's only only gather it if you're going to use it and if it's actually going to improve what you can deliver and how your client can perform in whatever metrics you want to challenge and i think that's the important message there yeah okay well kind of sticking on the theme of kind of technology well it's not sticking on the theme of technology but it kind of leads nicely into the next question i have for you really is you you touched on the the sexy exercise sessions the really (laughs) appealing ones that you see on instagram and other social media channels all the time and yeah they look great and they kind of stimulate interest and ideas for people working um as fitness professionals maybe but on the on social media channels like instagram etc you don't get the background to it necessarily or why they're using it it's just there for impressive factors or look what i can do and look how great my athletes can train etc yeah obviously that has sparked some form of interest in the world of snc but but what do you think has really sparked the growth of snc over the past few years do you put it down to things like technology or are there other factors from your perspective um I think the, the growth or, I mean, are we talking kind of the awareness of S&C? I think it's probably one, one question there as well. Yeah. I think the growth of S&C, S&C has been around for a good, a good while now. You know, we're talking about kind of training physical quality to improve performance. It's been around a while. I think the, 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 the person delivering it has maybe changed slightly from being more of a technical coach or even a, a sports scientist in the early days, which was mm-hmm. a real jack of all trades. Um, I think more recently it's it's been given a lot more credibility and, and exposure through through media. And that's been, you know, when you've got a pro boxer, you know, in this post fight conference and you know, and he's he's sort of thanking his his coach, his you know, his his ring team and his strength conditioning coach. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this exposure of oh, who who's strength conditioning, you know, and who who works with, with this chap. And you see it with, you know, the Olympians, pro sports. I think there's been a much more of a focus on the bigger sports science team behind sports. Mm. You know, you hear a lot more about the backroom staff, you know, in football and, and who's been doing what and, you know, and how this manager has, has, has come across and brought his entire team with him. Um, so I think that's been really important that it's always been there. It's, but as, as a, a named profession, strength and conditioning, that's really only come to the forefront probably in the last 20 years, 25 years. Um, and that's really because people are giving it credibility. People are, are willing to acknowledge it and say, you know, hey, I've, I've, I've had strength conditioning support. Um, a, a, you know, a really great coach, Nick Ransom, often says, you know, there shouldn't be any egos in strength and conditioning. You know, quite honestly, when, when you know, the athlete does phenomenally well, it's not down to us. You know, it's it's not that, you know, it's because they're a phenomenal athlete. They've had an amazing work ethic. Yes, we've supported in a small role, but we don't win the trophies. Mm-hmm. However, the flip side, especially in pro sport, if that athlete gets injured, it's definitely down to us. So I think there's a, a higher profile of strength and conditioning. And of course, it's, it's then associated with, with money and success and pro sport and Olympians. It, it's got the association. I think that's been a huge push into why it's suddenly become much more prevalent in the UK and um, definitely within the fitness industry, um, you know, academic courses in strength and conditioning have boomed in the last 15 years. There's currently around 17 or 18 master's level courses in strength and conditioning in the UK, which is a huge number of graduates every year as a master's level S&C coach or a master's level S&C uh, student, let's say. So I think that's really important. That it's, it's that association with performance and, and you know, objective measures that people can relate to winning trophies, earning money, 
you know, getting big contracts, big prime time fights. Um, and it's done a huge amount, both positively and negatively, for the, the image of, of the profession. And it's, uh, it, it's very exciting to be involved in it. And I think that's a huge appeal for people, perhaps, who've come through more of a traditional health and fitness um, industry progression of course people want to be involved with it now mm, definitely and I, I mean you even see it with with sports which traditionally you would never have thought had any kind of conditioning in them things like motorsport for instance you know you're no. seeing that more and more these days i've noticed that the snc trainer is coming out at the end of the race or he's on the the grid um at the start yeah. you know, with with the the driver etc and for a lot of people they don't really comprehend or think about what goes on in the gym or the weights room yeah or, on the uh, in the studio etc the physical requirements for it really yeah yeah. and um, absolutely james I and mean, i work with a young motocross lab and uh for him to throw around a 94 kilo 450 bike and the the the, the activity he does in in 20 odd minute motos is phenomenal they'll be so strong and mobile and, and and robust to keep plugging and plugging and plugging and you know of course you know if you're sat in an f1 car for two hours undergoing the forces and the demands of that that's a huge huge challenge as well physically yeah definitely okay so i guess what we're saying is really it's a, it's a combination of things it's media attention to the to the job role and mm-hmm. the kind of attraction of of things like instagram all the videos and everything else that goes on there maybe it's yeah. a natural progression for people already working in the industry but also there's more education around it now I guess what we're saying as well. I mean, when I went to university, I did a sports science degree. SNC didn't didn't really exist. No one spoke about it. It was it no. was a module that we did, but there there wasn't. You most certainly couldn't go on and do a, a whole master's program in it um, at that time. So maybe no, 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 I guess it, it, <laughs> no. I'm I'm there with you. Um, I think very much it, it's it's a North American involvement. Of course, it's been it's been named let's say in you know in the states and and other areas of the world for longer than we've had it and it's 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 that involvement and it's brought across and yeah it's 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 new it's exciting it's got connotations of performance and 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 higher level achievement and of course people want to be involved okay that's really good to know so I kind of lead on from that one as well really is what was your route or what is the typical route i guess into working in in the world of strength and conditioning, we, we've said how the kind of rise of it and the appeal of it has, has grown over the years. But for anybody who's wanting to get into the role of an SNC coach, professional, working with teams or individual athletes, what would you suggest yeah. they do? Um, how would they go about it? I, I guess first off, there's there's definitely a common route to give yourself the best opportunities, but by no means is that the only way. Um, I think that's probably the first thing to preface. The common route would be some sort of maybe broad sports science background. So that might be an undergraduate degree in sports science. Because I think it's important that um, you have a, a broad understanding of all the disciplines, you know, physiology, biomechanics, um, you know, nutrition, strength conditioning, just so you, you kind of understand what each role would do, let's say. Uh, as I sort of said, and of course my own personal kind of investment in, in the master's level or higher postgraduate level education, um, I think, you know, that's a very feasible way to then go on to become more of a, a specialist in the, the knowledge and the skills behind strength conditioning. So maybe a master's route. Um, that's great. And that, that often will get you to the point where you'll, you'll send your CV in for a job, app, a job advert and you'll probably get to the shortlist stage because you, you've got an undergraduate degree and you've got a master's. However, if you don't have experience, or just practical application or demonstration of you doing it, 
um, you're often you're never going to get the interview. And I think that's a big a big thing as well. That the academic knowledge is great, but without the experience of actually how do you deliver this stuff? Um, and of course, vocational qualifications that come along with it. I was fortunate with my first employer. Um, they put me through a lot of qualifications. So I went through British Weightlifting, uh, British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, um, UKSCA, which was kind of in its heyday, or in its very early days, excuse me, back then, the, the National Strength Conditioning Association, which is the, the North American um, governing body. I was very lucky. I, I went through all of those vocational calls. So not only did I have an undergraduate degree, I was developing experience, but plus I had all these qualifications. Um, and that's really important. I think the, the the most pertinent point, and I think we'll probably come to this a little bit later, is talking about actually how do you get experience? Because it is a small profession. It's a young profession, strength and conditioning, which has its benefits and has its downfalls. The benefits are you can network effectively, you can progress. You know, there are niches for you to develop. There are things that are untapped. So for developing kind of a business strategy, and I know we'll talk about this in, in, in some of our upcoming podcasts, there's a great opportunity. You know, the profession isn't exhausted by any sense. There's lots of opportunities there. However, you know, the negatives are it's a small world. People know people, people talk. There is unfortunately always going to be small networks and small cliques, and that's just the reality of sport. Um, jobs aren't going to be advertised. A lot of jobs get advertised in a very informal fashion through Twitter. You know, Spencer, who's the head coach here, say, hey, we're looking for some, some coaches to come on board. Send me a CV. And it becomes very much, uh, right, who are your references? Let's have a quick chat with so-and-so and so-and-so because most people are about two, two, two handshakes removed from everyone else in strength conditioning. So quite often you can, you can find someone's phone number or a colleague who knows someone else rather quickly. And, of course, if you've done yourself well and due diligence and, and you've, you know, reflected well, then I'm sure that'll be all positive. But unfortunately, you know, I have heard of things in the past where someone's gone for a job interview and quite frankly, they haven't got the job before they've even been to the interview because someone's chased up and had a little chat with a friend of theirs who's worked with them and said, no, this person isn't right for your institution or your organization. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, the, the most reliable route is to go through education and then lots of experience, develop network, you know, and, and find the roles that excite you and you can kind of work with and, the organizations that you, you relate with and bounce with. But equally, there's, there's other ways of falling into it, of applying for jobs uh, in a blind fashion, you know, ones that are formally advertised and just being the best candidate on the day, which is which is an excellent opportunity as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. The evidence is important, but the experience is equally important, if not more important. It's, it's interesting. I don't know. I've got a question which I heard something about a while ago. Um, I don't know how true it is or what your knowledge is of it. And it kind of relates to applying for jobs. So I heard that particularly with a lot of contact sports now, uh, interviews, there's a lot of emphasis on prevention of things like concussion, yeah. as well as focusing on what would be the more traditional and fundamental parts of or um, skills as working of working as an SNC coach. Mm -hmm. Is that something which you've heard or come across? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know sports, um, individual sports, and also groups of sports, like combat sports, collision sports, you know, court-based sports. They all have their specialist areas. So let's be honest. Um, court-based sports, basketball, netball, um, you know, there's a high incidence of knee injuries. So, you know, if you go into a job interview and you've got experience of working with, you know, ACL knee ligament reconstructions or you've done preventative work with knee injuries in the past, 
that's of course going to give you a huge amount of, of brownie points. Um, the concussion area, I mean, there's been a lot of research, you know, lately identifying that concussion isn't isn't just an acute problem, i.e. the immediate effects a day, two days, a week following, it's the long-term problems. And I think that's where sports and governing bodies especially are investing an awful lot in, in ensuring that athlete well-being 10 years down the line, 10 years post-retirement, that they still have a, a duty of care to support those athletes. And they need to put things in place to, to reduce that um, instance of concussion and the effects of concussion in the early days when they're, when they're playing. So this is where we see changes in junior rugby to reduce impacts, changes in tackling techniques. And of course, the introduction of strength conditioning, you know, an area of importance. Our primary goal is to reduce injury. And each sport will have its own epidemiology um, and etiology of injury. So therefore, we need to work best to, to reduce the things we can reduce, be it concussion, be it knee, knee ligament damage, be it shoulder dislocation. If that happens a lot in that sport, we need to be up on it. And I think that's probably an important interview and, and career kind of message that if you are adamant to work in one particular sport, let's say MMA, contact sport, grappling sports, well, then you need to understand the demands of that sport and you need to understand the injuries. You need to understand the requirements for training. Um, and you need to get yourself experience and exposure, probably more importantly, within that realm. You need to go and do work. You need to talk to people. You need to become an expert as best as you can in that environment because that's ultimately what they're looking for. And I guess the reality is, if, you know, giving you some rough numbers, we, we've got around 17 postgraduate degrees in, in strength conditioning in the UK at the moment. That can be upwards of around 400 graduates every year. And of course, if you suddenly got an influx of all these master's level graduates at strength and conditioning, there's not that many jobs. And there's definitely not that many jobs formally advertised. So a lot of it is for you to develop a niche and develop a, a very bespoke skill set to allow you to, to fit into a certain area. And, and hopefully an area that you'll love and be extremely passionate about. But I think that there, it does come the case that you need to, to know what you're getting into and, and have a clear understanding of what your your career objective and, and progression may be. So I guess one question I'm curious about, how important do you think it is that someone has their own background in sport themselves, regardless of whatever sport it is, just about being able to translate and transfer that knowledge, understanding, mm. experience even? Do you think that's a significant factor or an important factor or do you think these days it, I, it doesn't really matter so much? I think it does matter. I think it does matter, James. I think probably the, the, the biggest reason it matters, I think, is if you're if I'm writing a program for an athlete, I try it out first. I, I deliver it on myself. You know, I want to know, I need to understand how this feels. Is it achievable? You know, how do these rest periods and these demands actually impact me because the only way I'm going to get a really effective program is to, to ensure that it's individualized to my athlete, but it's realistic. It's really easy to cookie cutter things and look online and Google the most effective strength conditioning program for X, Y, and Z. But actually, if you were to go and try it yourself before you deliver it to your client or athlete, you're probably in for quite a shock because quite often this stuff is all very hypothetical and yes, it's based on evidence, but it, it's not grounded in the real world. And more importantly, it's not individualized to your client, your athlete, your team. Um, so, you know, you need to be physically capable to do this. You need to, to be training. You need to be active. You need to be have a, a broad skill set. I think it's important. Of course, if you've got a particular technical knowledge base in a particular sport, 
that may be beneficial. However, I think it's important to appreciate that when I've worked at high-level sport, I'm not the sport expert, the technical coach, and then the athlete. They're the sport experts. My role, and one way I do like to describe it, is I work with the athlete, not the sport. My role is to, to create the best athlete I possibly can do with my understanding of the sport, so the demands of the sport, be it strength, power, or agility, mobility, whatever it may be. And then I can get to the point where I can effectively give this athlete over to the coach and say, there you go. He's a, he's, a, he's a cracking athlete now. You do the technical stuff. So it's, it's important that you understand where your remit is. You are trying to improve physical qualities to allow the technical coach and the athlete to perform what they need to do. So, you know, whilst it's important to have that knowledge and understanding, you don't, don't have to be an elite performer, but you do need to be able to do this stuff and actually trial it and, and test it and understand how it feels. Because if you put your athlete through, let's say, a really horrible repeated sprint session and you're blase about it when they're on sprint five of ten and they're ready to, to, to bend over double and, and, and uh, you know, collapse on the floor, you know, and if you're giving it the gift of the gab saying, come on, you can do more, I think there's a lot of time, a bit of empathy of knowing exactly how that feels, you can help and you can motivate and you can energize and you can pick them back up from that. Whereas if... Uh, if you don't really know how it feels, I don't think you're ever going to be an effective coach. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I guess then, so you, you've covered some of the important things to consider if you get an interview um, and things to talk about mm-hmm. and, and what have you. But where would you suggest people go to to look for, for jobs? You, you touched on kind of non-traditional means like Twitter. Is there anywhere else yeah. that's, that is more traditional, maybe where people should be looking regularly if they want to work in this field that, that you're aware of or any other yeah, kind of well, I mean, like that? From a performance point of view, UK sport is a, is a good a good starting point. They'll often list an awful lot of, of sports-based jobs. Uh, the English Institute of Sports, Scottish Institute of Sports, um, working within higher education, so jobs.ac.uk. They're all, all important kind of job sites. I think it's also probably LinkedIn, I think, is is got an area of growth for, for this side of things, both to um, proactively uh, market yourself and your expertise, because quite often employers may do some searches through LinkedIn, um, you know, look for a certain type of candidate and come to you. Um, but equally, it allows you to, to form networks. And quite often, it's those networks that, that, that work the best. That, you know, for instance, you're in a network with somebody and his colleague is, is going to be leaving a role. The job may never get advertised, but they may give you a little heads up of, hey, perhaps, you know, drop your CV over to the head coach. Because, of course, organizations would much rather not have to go through the lengthy HR process, uh, advertisement process. If somebody falls on their plate who's appropriate and has already been okayed by members of the team. So it's kind of dual pronged that the the formal adverts are out there, but I really do think a lot of it is, is developing a network and sometimes being in the right place at the right time. And maybe that means that you've done some voluntary work. You've done, dare I say, an internship, and we'll definitely talk about the, the pros and cons of internships. But often those are development roles. If you can go there and you can show a work ethic, you can show a commitment to the team or the organization, you can show clear outcomes, then often that goes recognized. And it's amazing how many roles are created for an individual. And I don't mean to put anyone off by any means, but I think it's really important to be realistic. The UKSCA, a couple of years ago, did what they call the State of the Nation survey. And it effectively surveyed a whole lot of S&C coaches in the UK. And it was everything from years of experience to, to how much you get paid. And it was anonymized, but it came up with some really interesting data. Not to, to bore your listeners, but 
I think it's a competitive environment. Something like a quarter of all S&C coaches currently are unpaid in the UK. They're purely volunteers. And these are accredited level or higher level S&C coaches. Um, and something like over a third of S&C coaches currently at the moment are earning less than 20 grand a year. Mm-hmm. So it's, if anyone's under delusions or illusions that it's a, a highly paid environment and by putting strength and conditioning coach or practitioner on your, your job description, you're suddenly going to be um, in the upper echelons of, of finances. I think it, 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 it's misinformed. Uh, yes, of course, there are S&C coaches who work at very high levels at pro teams and earn, I'm sure, very good salaries. But equally, I would argue there's probably far more fitness professionals earning far more than £20,000 a year at busy city centre gyms. Mm. And I think that's an important factor. It, you know, you do it because of a love of sport and performance and wanting to develop individuals and teams. You know, I'm sure a wise man once said, I can't remember the quote, if you do what you love, you'll you'll, you'll be rewarded for it. And I think that's an important sentiment as well. You do it because you love it. And, you know, with all things, if you love it, you engage with it, you put your, your effort and energy into it. And, and generally that's, that's seen by people and people support that and people will offer you more roles or consultancy or better pay or more clientele or, or better opportunities for you to develop as an individual. And that's really important as well that it's, you know, it is about your growth. And that's uh, something I, 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 reiterate a lot to my students and my my sort of mentees men, mentor coaches yeah it, unfortunately it's just one of those things isn't it? this whole industry sector um however you want to frame it it, it is traditionally fairly low paid um and it's such a shame yeah. given that most of the time from my, from my experience and what i kind of see in in my role is it's down to the individual fitness professional snc coach a lot of the time to invest their own money and time into mm-hmm. becoming better skilled, more qualified. And I just think yeah. we need more support from employers to, to help upskill staff, provide a better service and retain staff. Yeah. And a part, a large part of that, unfortunately, does reflect in, in salaries, unfortunately, which is quite frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, James. And it, 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 strength conditioning is a, a very challenging profession to be involved in. Um, immensely rewarding, but it, it's hard. It's um, as with, with sport, fitness and health, it's antisocial hours. It's from fundamentally a service profession, which means I'm only as good as what I can deliver. I, I don't personally engage much with, with online programming. I'm lucky that I have a, a good, good athlete base and I, I want to work with them face-to-face. I, I enjoy the engagement and the communication and building relationships and rapport. But it, you've got to be aware of what you're getting into and, uh, and how best to do it, I think, is the important message there. Mm. And so you, I guess you've identified that one of the barriers to potentially mm-hmm. getting into this as a career is unfortunately low pay traditionally. Um, undoubtedly, there are some SNC coaches out there who are paid an absolute fortune, I'm sure. But traditionally, <laughs> and again, the data that I've seen is that that's not the case. It's highly competitive yeah. um, to get into. So are there any other barriers or stumbling blocks that you've come across either in your own career or that you've heard of that our listeners might benefit from knowing about in terms of pursuing a career in, in this area? I, I think as we've highlighted, I think it, it's, it's working hours. I think it's money. Um, I think getting into the career is having um, an underpinning evidence base and so some sort of qualification, I think, in, in education or some level of that I think is important. That's definitely one. I think it's having a network established and therefore having experience. And often it's a catch-22. 
you can't get the experience or you can't get the role without the experience. And of course, you can't get experience without some sort of title already. So, you know, you often end up doing these unpaid roles. And a number of years ago, the internship suddenly boomed. And um, because of the demand for jobs within strength conditioning, there did become a point where internships, so unpaid, unpaid roles, let's say a 12-month contract, were they were asking for effectively a master's level accredited coach to work for free for a year, mm. you know, and people were doing it because they were so desperate to get some sort of foot on the ladder. So one thing I'll always say from a, a, a let's say a barrier is make sure you know what you're getting into and make sure you, you have an appreciation of your value in the marketplace as well. Um, and if you're delivering things that you feel um, aren't becoming rewarded, and that might be a reward financially, it might be a reward by uh, development opportunities, might be a potential career movement. I think you need to really be questioning why you're in that role. You shouldn't be giving your, your time away for nothing. And I mean that nothing in the sense of no return whatsoever, be it financial experience, networking or development. And there's still demand for that in the UK, very much so, because ultimately there's a lot less jobs than there are a lot more people. So I think if I were a, a fitness industry professional looking to move to strength conditioning, I think it's a slow process. I think you look to get um, experience. Um, I would definitely maintain my client base from a PT point of view to ensure that I can pay my rent, pay my mortgage. Because if I jump in two-footed, it's going to be an awfully challenging environment. Yeah. And I think you, you, you take the time to build network, build relationships, build an experience base, and then things will quite honestly naturally appear for you you'll then be in the right place at the right time. Um, and I think that's a, an important message to be there, that it's just giving yourself the opportunities. But if you try to force the opportunities, you'll often come unstuck. And that's, that's the bottom line as well. Oh, I think I think that's really useful advice. Often people assume that one day they'll be doing this role and then tomorrow or in the next few weeks, I'll be taking on this new client base or new role or pathway within my mm -hmm. career. And, and often it is this kind yeah. of overlapping transition period whereby don't go jump in two footed, dip your toe in, see what's happening, how you get on. And that old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, I guess is, is quite pertinent here. Okay. Excellent, James. That's really good to know. So just to wrap up this, this first part of our podcast, I guess, what, what's a typical day like for you working as a SNC practitioner, specialist coach? What's it like? It does vary a bit. And I guess um, my current days, are, I'll be honest, are more academic based and I, I fit my coaching in the evenings, and I fit my, my coaching admin work at the weekend. So I, I tend to work multiple roles at the moment. I think when I was working as a full-time coach practitioner, it was getting to work early. If I can get a session in myself, I would do. Then there'd often be kind of a fairly early morning training group. So maybe it'd be up by 7, 8 o'clock. Um, we'd be working with a team or multiple teams um, or individual athletes. Following that, there would be probably a, a period where we would do some sort of team, so support team, sports science team, coaching team debrief. I would talk to technical coaches and look at that review and that reflection and that planning side of things and work through where we wanted to go next and what we wanted to do and how we wanted to develop it. Coaching would then probably come in again later in the day. We'd probably do an afternoon session, moving on to the evening as well. Um, and it would really be just, just rotating around that that process. We would be a degree of planning, a degree of doing, and a degree of reviewing. You know, to, to quote the kind of the earlier phrase. But it all be done in a in a team environment. 
it would be really great opportunities to sit down with the technical coaches and look at individual players and say, what does this person need from a technical point of view? You know, I can then discuss what does this person need from a, a physical qualities point of view. Um, and, and ultimately, we can ensure that it, it's a, a cohesive plan moving forward. And I think probably that's the, the biggest thing I learned as a strength conditioning coach is that everything has to be collaborative. You know, I can go in there with the best theory and, and logic and, and science possible, but if the athlete's not bought in, if the team coach isn't bought in, then it's not going to happen. You know, you, you have to give a little ground, take a little ground. You, you have to find, you know, the best opportunities all around. And sometimes that's a slow process. Sometimes that's trying to bring a coach around to a different way of thinking. Um, not forcing it down their throat by any means, but, you know, demonstrating good evidence and little little steps until we start seeing positive changes and then we get a buy-in. And fundamentally, it comes down to building relationships. You know, and I think that's a huge similarity between the fitness industry and the strength conditioning industry. It's just working with people, being a communicator, um, developing rapport and developing relationships. And that was pretty much my days, coaching, planning, programming, and reviewing. And uh, it's, uh, it's hard work, but it's rewarding work, that's for sure. Yeah, that's really good to know, really good to know. Okay, I think we'll uh, wrap up this first part of this podcast. Great stuff. And then uh, we'll... We'll come back with part two very shortly. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure.